Uh, Father God, thank you, Lord, just for your graciousness and your love and your mercies. I thank you, Lord, just for bringing us all together this morning here in person and those that are with us via live stream to worship your Son, to worship the Lord Jesus Christ, to bring you glory, God. And I pray that our our worship time has been pleasing to you. And that now, Lord, you will be pleased with the preaching and teaching and the listening and the hearing, the application, applying of your word to our lives. Help us, Lord, help us to grow in Christ-likeness, to be more like your Son. We pray these things in your Son, Jesus' very precious name. Amen. There was one blistering, well not one, but one blistering hot day in the early 1900s, turn of the century, there was a future pastor named Charles Herman Trueblood who was all clean and cooled off by an afternoon swim in the ocean. He saw a sweating man and his two sons trying to push a disabled car up an incline. Two competing voices inside his head started coaching him. One said, there is an opportunity for service. Oh, you ought to go help them push. And the other voice protested, now, really, come on, that's none of your business, true blood. You'll just get yourself all hot and sweaty and dirty. Just let them handle their own affair. He finally yielded to his better impulse He put his shoulder to the task and the car moved and kept moving. And a simple thing then happened which True Blood never forgot. The father stuck out his dirty hand and True Blood stuck out his. And the father said, I am so very glad that you came along. You had just enough strength added to ours to make the thing go. True Blood later reflected Years have passed since that hot day, but I can still hear that man saying, you had just enough strength added to ours to make the thing go. And friends, this is what our text this morning would have us consider how we can add our strength to that of our brothers and sisters to help make them go. That's what it's all about. Please go ahead and turn in your Bibles to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 13. And please stand for the reading of God's word. 1 Thessalonians 5, 13. Paul writes this to the church at Thessalonica. Live in peace with one another. We urge you, brethren, admonish the unruly, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with everyone. See that no one repays another with evil for evil, but always seek after that which is good for one another and for all people. Now, before you sit down, just turn back a little bit and go to the book of Philippians, would you? Philippians chapter 2. And we'll kind of use this as a as a theme verse. We're not going to exposit it. We're just going to read it. Philippians chapter 2, beginning in verse 3, where Paul writes, 
to the Philippian church. Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind, regard one another as more important than yourselves. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. Of course, he continues on and gives us the the greatest example of that that we could ever have before us, the Lord Jesus Christ, who put our interests above his own, even going to the cross in our place. This is the word of God. You may be seated. Well, as we get back into our text of 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, the Apostle Paul continues with this shift in his letter as he starts to kind of bring it to a close. Last week we looked at Paul's two requests of the congregation towards their elders. The first request was that they would appreciate their elders, their leaders. And then he gives them kind of three caveats uh, about appreciating them. And, and really what it amounted to is three responsibilities of the elders to earn that appreciation. It was that they would diligently labor for the church, that they would have charge over the church, and that they would give instruction to the church. This was then followed by a second request of Paul that they would, the Thessalonians would esteem their leaders highly in love. And that came with one more caveat or responsibility of the elders that they would work. That they would work. Then over the next several verses here, as we get to our text, Paul keeps his attention on the congregation as he continues to urge them towards godly, Christ-like living, first towards one another, and then next week we'll talk more specifically about themselves or ourselves. So this morning I want you to see from our text six surefire sanctifiers of others, which in turn will also sanctify you, making you more into the image of Christ. You might see a seven come up on the screen. We, we, I condensed it down uh, before we had time to fix it to, uh, to make it um, into, uh, into six. But again, these things will help you to encourage others to become more like Jesus. And so for our purposes this morning, the focus is again how we interact with others, that they may grow in their sanctification. In other words, I want you to see how you can help others to mature in their Christian walks through your relationships with them, as well as even encourage some towards belief in the gospel. Now, why would we want to do this? Why would we want to help sanctify other believers? Well, because God commands it, of course. But also because as Paul says in Colossians chapter 1 and verse 28, we proclaim him, the him is Jesus, we proclaim Jesus admonishing every man, we could say and woman, and teaching every man and woman with all wisdom so that we may present every man and woman complete in Christ. That's the goal for us all to be complete in Christ. Our sanctification 
The sanctification of others made full. That every saved person would one day stand before the Lord fully matured and perfected. And we think what a glorious day that will be. Now, I don't know about you, but maybe you've also wondered this question. Why is it so important to be pursuing this sanctification, this becoming more like Christ here on earth? Because, I don't know, you might think to yourself, well, here's the, I mean, when I get to heaven, boom, it's going to happen. When I get to heaven, you know, either I die and I go to be with the Lord or he comes back first, whichever, whichever happens there, then I know at that moment I will be perfected. I will be sanctified fully, completely. I will be glorified. I will be fully righteous. What, what is the, what's the big deal with having to kind of do so much of that here on earth in this life prior to that time? Well, there's, there's a, there's a myriad of reasons. The first few are ones that you've probably heard or that I've mentioned before. Sanctification causes us to live faithfully for the Lord Jesus Christ because we we want to be found faithful at his return, right? Secondly, sanctification brings heavenly rewards for how you glorified God here on earth. Thirdly, sanctification demonstrates to the world at large changed lives, which then feeds the next one that sanctification leads to evangelism as our heart for the lost grows. And people see those changed lives and they want to know kind of why that is. But here's another reason that I want to share with you this morning. That was one that, that when I was doing a study of end times previously, several years back, it, it kind of became apparent to me and I was like, that's really that's cool. That's cool. And I want to share it with you. But it's that we should be desiring and growing and maturing in our Christ-likeness and, and in the Christ-likeness of others according to 2 Peter chapter 3. So I want you to turn there real, real brief. 2 Peter, keep your bookmark there at Thessalonians. We're coming right back. But 2 Peter chapter 3, towards the back there, getting close to Revelation, right before 1 John, 2 John, 3 John. 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 13. Here Peter is talking about the coming day of the Lord that we just kind of got done talking about a few weeks ago and the new heavens and the new earth. And he says this, 2 Peter 3, beginning in verse 13. But according to his promise, God's promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless. In other words, because we are looking for these things, we want to be found in him in peace and, and by him in peace and spotless and blameless. But why? Think about an unbeliever. Somebody who truly hates God, has rejected God, wants nothing to do with God. And think about how they live their life here on earth. Think about what's important to them. Their value system, how they see the world, what they have been kind of grown accustomed to by the world. And even what of the world it is that they, that they love. And when you, when you get down to the nitty gritty, it's all self-serving. It is all self-serving. Self 
serving because they are living for themselves. Now, take that self-serving unbeliever and suddenly drop them into heaven. Imagine that that were to happen. Do you honestly think that unbeliever is going to like what they see? Think about it. Do you think they'll, they'll feel pleased for being there in heaven? Do you think being face-to-face with Jesus, the one they rejected here on earth, do you think that's going to be some kind of blessing to them? I don't think so. I would say absolutely not. Uh, imagine, imagine if if uh, you uh, let's let's say you're you know you're you're a pretty good citizen and you worst you've got is a parking ticket and let's say that you are suddenly accused for some some heinous crime that you didn't commit and next thing you know bam you are in prison. It would feel so foreign to you. It would feel you would recoil at it and and it would be horrendous and you would just want to do nothing but get out of there. I don't belong here. This doesn't feel right. Consequently, let's uh, say you know somebody who, I know this is hard to believe, they hate Disneyland. They hate it. They hate it with a passion. right? They, they hate the sights, and they hate the sounds, and they hate the crowds, and they hate the rides, and they don't like all the smiling, happy faces, and they don't like, you know, you know, Characters running around in costume and rides and stupid mouse ears. And I'm not saying they're stupid. I, I, I like the mouse ears, okay? But, but if you were to take, if you were to take uh, this person who hates Disneyland and suddenly drop them right in the center of Disneyland on a popular crowded day, what do you think? Do you think they're going to go, oh, this is really... This is really what it really is the happiest place on earth. They're going to be like, no, get me out of here. See, it's just what I said. It's as horrible as I thought, as I was telling you. And they would just want out. They would just want out. Well, for an unbeliever, heaven will not, would, would not, because they won't be there. Heaven would not be. If an unbeliever could go to heaven, it would not be the blissful place that, that you and I see it as to them. It wouldn't feel blissful to them. It would feel like a curse. They'll despise it. They'll hate it. They'll want to get as far away from it as possible. But we who are looking for the new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells, we will be, we will be wildly fulfilled by it. We will love every second of it. We will have such joy over it. We will be blessed by it and we will cherish it eternally and and the point here that i'm trying to make with you is that is that as god sanctifies you you are being changed into a person who is looking forward to heaven who is getting ready for heaven as you're sanctified this creates then continuity for you and i going from this life into the heavenly kingdom life So that this transition from one to the other will be smooth. And it will be making sense to you. It will be what you expected. And then, of course, so much more. And you will delight in it. So the question then is, is, well, what do we wait? What do we do as we wait for it? We start acting as if it's 
right there in front of us. We start acting as if it's just around the corner, just around the river bend, right? We start acting as if it's even already here because it is what we long for. It is what we desire. In other words, your holy conduct and godliness in this life will prepare you for the life to come. And it will make transitioning into God's new heavens and new earth just all the more natural for you and for others that you will have a profound effect upon. Amen? Okay, so getting back to our text, we'll get back to 1 Thessalonians 5. 1 Thessalonians 5. Where we have our, our, uh, our, our six surefire sanctifiers. And the first one is this, peaceful living. Peaceful living. We go back to verse 13b where it says, live in peace with one another. And of course, true peace is what's being referred to here. Spiritual peace, the peace that passes all understanding. It starts with having peace with God. Right? Pastor Brock shared with us, just even as we were getting ready for communion, the gospel The gospel of Jesus Christ, the good news that we are sinners and that our sin deserves consequences, death and hell and the lake of fire. But God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever would believe in him would not perish but have everlasting eternal life. That if we would put our faith and our trust in Jesus and what he accomplished on the cross on behalf of us for our sins, then we can be forgiven of those sins. We can also have eternal life based on him going into the ground, but three days later resurrecting so that we too know that we would resurrect from the dead and have eternal life with him. Now, why would Paul find it necessary to tell the church to live in peace with one another? I mean, isn't the church made up of believers? Christians, right? who are all godly men and women and who just love each other and promote peace with each other? Or are we talking about those friends that live up in Idaho? That, you know, I heard once, you cross the border into Idaho, you become fully sanctified. It just happens. That's why everybody is rushing up there, I think. So I'm I'm teasing, of course. We love you, Idaho brothers and sisters. Of course, Paul is requesting this of even his beloved Thessalonian folks because though they are sinners saved by grace, he knows that they still struggle, they still still fight against their sin-cursed flesh, which so often does not want to live with others in a peaceful way. Hmm, does that maybe sound like even us here today? Granted, our lack of striving for peace may be a bit more subtle than that, but that's basically what it amounts to. Now, the New Testament word for peace is irene, irene, which has several meanings, such as as harmony. Uh, It's the opposite of dissension or war. It's tranquility, even health, welfare, prosperity, really every kind of good. And of course, peace is part of the fruit of the Spirit, right? In Galatians 5, 22. And certainly there it refers to having peace with others as Paul has just previously warned against biting and devouring one another back in Galatians 5.15. And he then continues on after that with this list of just very deplorable sins that would actually destroy peace with others. Things like enmities and strife and jealousy and outbursts of anger and disputes and dissensions and factions and envying. Friends, these are peace destroyers. 
not peace promoters. And it's why peace is a part of the fruit of the Holy Spirit. Now, the New Testament is very clear in its stand for peace with one another, right? Romans 12, 18, Paul says, if possible, so far as it depends on you, be at peace with all men. Or Romans 14, 19, so then we pursue the things which make for peace and the building up of one another in hebrews 12 14 it says pursue peace with all men and the sanctification without which no one will see the lord and finally in first peter 3 10 and 11 it says for the one who desires life to love and to see good days i mean you want to desire life right and to love and see good days he must seek peace and pursue it So, friends, you and I, we have to be diligent, proactive, vigilant Christian peacemakers. We must make great efforts in our pursuing of peace with one another. And I might just add it, even especially in light of all this body has endured in, you know, the last number of months and what have you. Now, how do we do this? How do we become this pursuer of peace? And how do we promote peace with one another and help others in that area? Here's just, just some, some, some quickie ways, four quickie ways. Remember that we are all a part of the same body of Christ, the church, both on a universal sense, but also in this local sense, right? In 1 Corinthians 12, 12, we read, For even as the body is one and yet has many members, and all the members of the body, though they are many, are one body, so also is Christ, So that there may be no division in the body, but that the members may have the same care for one another. Right? So as the body of Christ, we are promoting peace among the members. Secondly, along with being united with each other, we must also remember that it is Christ's body, Jesus's body that we are members of. In other words, our whole existence is about bringing glory to Christ. And what is at stake then is the honor of his name in how we conduct our relationships with each other. And if we're sinning against each other and we're quarreling with each other and we're gossiping and we're backbiting and we're maligning and we're accusing or sowing seeds of discord, then we dishonor Christ and we drag his name through the mud. That's what we do. Thirdly, when peace is destroyed amongst us, we have to first and foremost look where? Into our own hearts. Sometimes we've got to dig kind of deep in there, do some surgery. We Christians, I'm sorry to say it, but we love to blame shift just as much as the next guy. We do. And this is where we have to humble ourselves. And we have to recognize any of our own responsibility and sin in being a peace destroyer. And then fourthly, we must take the lead in restoring peace, friends. And again, it it involves ridding ourselves of pride and arrogance, being, being willing to be the first one to step out and break the ice in pursuit of peace, as hard as that might be. However, can I also say that as hard as it may be, it will also be such a blessing to your soul if you step out and be the first to make that move. What did Jesus say in Matthew 5, 9? But blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the sons of God. 
I mean, Jesus makes it clear that it doesn't matter whether you have been wronged or whether um, you have done the wrong, you are responsible for going to the other person to restore peace. And you say, wasn't that their responsibility too? Absolutely. So, so then picture this. I mean, if we're all doing this the way the scripture would tell us to do that, it means then whether you are wronged or you have been wronged, if everybody on both sides is still going for peace, then we meet each other in the middle and it's peaceful. And we, and we find that peace together. Praise God. Praise God. Secondly, our second surefire sanctifier is to discipline the undisciplined. Discipline the undisciplined. In verse 14, Paul says, we urge you, brethren, admonish the unruly. And we've already learned from verse 12 earlier on that admonish also means to instruct. But it also can mean to warn, which seems to be more the emphasis here because Paul is urging them. There's that paracoleto word again, urging them, helping, helping in the sense of warning the unruly, literally the undisciplined, those neglectful of duties or even the idle. He is telling them they need to be confronted on their sin. Go ahead and turn to Second Thessalonians. Keep your bookmark again. Go to Second Thessalonians chapter 3. Should just be probably a page or two to the right. Second Thessalonians chapter 3 beginning in verse 6. And here Paul gives us a further picture of what he had in mind. In fact, it would seem that after this warning that he gives in First Thessalonians that we're looking at right now, things didn't change so much. And so when he gets to Second Thessalonians... He has to get more explicit about what he means. 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, beginning in verse 6. Now we command you, brethren. I just would point out, notice something here? It's not an, an urging anymore. It's not a request, which he did in 1 Thessalonians. He says, now we command you, brethren, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. That's Paul just pulling out all the big guns, right? The big guns here. That you keep away from every brother who leads an unruly life and not according to the tradition which you received from us. Meaning, because their tradition was not one of an unruly life. Verse 7, for you yourselves know how you ought to follow our example because we did not act in an undisciplined manner among you. Nor did we eat anyone's bread without paying for it. But with labor and hardship, we kept working night and day so that we would not be a burden to any of you. And because we do not have the right to this, but in order to offer ourselves as a model for you so that you would follow our example. For even when we were with you, we used to give you this order. If anyone is not willing to work, then he's not to eat either. For we hear that some among you are leading an undisciplined life, doing no work at all but acting like busybodies. Now such persons we command and exhort in the Lord Jesus Christ to work in quiet fashion and eat their own bread. And there it is, folks. There it is. Leading an undisciplined life, doing no work at all, but acting like busybodies. In other words, everywhere, doing everything, but doing nothing, basically. I mean, and this can include things like laziness, being a sluggard or a slothfulness, 
not working as Paul explicitly mentioned, even mooching, you know, off others. They're, they're the ones who love telling others how they should be doing things. In fact, there's a whole lot of yik-yak, a whole lot of talk without the walk. They are those who take advantage of the work of others. They ride on the coattails of others. In the case of a church, these are folks who would try and sinfully take advantage of the benevolence of the church or the people in the church. These are people who use and abuse others. Back in the day, Army Secretary Frank Pace Jr., mid-20th uh, century, went down to Fort Bragg to watch a big airlift maneuver. After the drop, he tells, I saw a foxhole that had just been started. And as a very new secretary of the army, I thought it would be a good idea if I saw what this grubbing business was like. So I got down and I started digging. Well, just then a soldier stepped up and said, Mr. Secretary, I I would love to take your picture with you digging a foxhole. I thought, well, that was as it should be. And I, I really set about it in earnest. I was digging and I'm sweating and I'm digging. And it seemed to me like it was taking a long time for him to snap this picture. So I finally looked up and I said, uh, what's the matter? Something wrong with your camera? Oh, oh, no, sir. He said, that's my foxhole and I want to take your picture when you're through. <laughs> An unruly undisciplined person will seek to take unfair advantage of others and they need to be called out on it they need to be called out on their sin how do you do that matthew 18 right you go to them first lovingly kindly with all goodwill you're not going to you know hit them over the head with your your stick or whatever and and you explain to them what you've been seeing And you seek their repentance. And of course, if they are like, oh, gosh, thank you for coming to me. I am so sorry. Gosh, I didn't even realize it. Or, yeah, I kind of thought maybe I was doing. uh, And they repent, right? It's done. If not, the Matthew 18 says, then you take another brother or sister with you, right? And you confront them again. If not, at some point, the elders hopefully are going to hear about it, too. And then we tell it to the church, right? And still seek their repentance, et cetera, et cetera. Now, furthermore, 2 Thessalonians tells us that you are to also stay away from them, undoubtedly, so you don't fall into the same sin. Thirdly, soul salve. Our third surefire sanctifier is soul salve. And we see it in verse 14b when Paul says, encourage the faint-hearted. Now, why is it that some in the Thessalonian church were faint-hearted. I I believe it's because of the persecution that you saw going on even with Paul and Silvanus and Timothy, and it just kind of kept going. And so even as they're becoming new believers, there's some pretty serious persecution going on against the church, and there would be those then that would become faint-hearted. And and I've got to share the, the, the Greek word with you because it only appears one time in the New Testament. It's a good one. I mean, it's, it's kind of a funny one. I was like, oh man, I got to work on the pronunciation. It's a oligosukos. Oligosukos. It's a compound word where oligo means small or little and sukos means soul. Soul. So in other words, you're talking about a small or little soul. Hence the word faint hearted. In the church, these can be those who might be fretful or worrisome 
or anxious. They might be those who lack courage and boldness. And they might opt for what tends to be a little more easy, safe, and secure. And, and what should be done for people like these? Well, it's not like the unruly where we're going to admonish them in that sense. But we who are not faint-hearted are to do what? Encourage them. Encourage them. Now, encourage has a broad range of meanings, such as to speak kindly to or soothingly to, um, to comfort, console, or pacify. So you who are confident and you who are bold and sure will need to come alongside the faint-hearted and give them a good example to follow. And you might need to instruct them in the scriptures and help them to understand better things like God's sovereignty and how he's absolutely in control and God's promises and God's love and the fact that he answers prayer and that he will never leave or forsake them. And you will sometimes need to listen to them and you will sometimes need to exhort them and speak truth in their lives. One commentator says, By such reminders, the joyful, confident believer cheers up the joyless, timid one. That's our role then as encouragers. There's another secular writer who said this. I just thought it was good. He said, flatter me and I may not believe you. Criticize me and I may not like you. Ignore me and I may not forgive you. Encourage me, I will not forget you. It just demonstrates the power of encouragement and how encouragement can really, truly have such a profound effect on another person's life. Encouragers of the church are called to do this, to get into the lives of those that are faint-hearted. And here's the thing. If you're on the encouraging side, you know you're an encourager. Guess what? It's your job to look for the faint-hearted because the faint-hearted they're probably not going to come looking for you, right? Because they're faint-hearted. So be on the lookout. Find those people that you can encourage. Number four, Paul tells us we are to spiritually strengthen. Spiritually strengthen. Back in, in verse 14c, he simply says, help the weak. Help the weak. Literally without strength or powerless. It can be in both a physical or a spiritual sense, but the context here would indicate that Paul is referring to spiritual weakness, which would most likely be a weakened faith or weak faith. It can also include things like doubt and hesitation, vacillating in opinion or faith. It can also be weakness in the sense of just not even having a firm mind or a lack of decision-making ability. Turn, if you will, to 1 Corinthians chapter 8. 1 Corinthians chapter 8. And we'll pick up in verse 7. 1 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 7, where Paul, in speaking of those believers who have come out of idolatry, and then, of course, become Christians, but they've come out of this world of, of worshiping, false gods, you know, going to the temple and temple worship and idol worship. He says this in 1 Corinthians 8, 7. However, not all men have this knowledge. 
the knowledge that he's referring to is the proper knowledge of the fact that there's only one God. One true God. He says, not all men have this knowledge, but some, being accustomed to the idol until now, eat food as if it were sacrificed to an idol, and their conscience, being weak, is defiled. Meaning, at this point, that, that person who's come out of this, this, this idolatrous deal, right? When they would sit down, because they, they'd make these sacrifices to the idols, but then they'd eat the food. You know, it was okay. It was like having a big barbecue kind of deal. But, um, but in this case, now they're Christians. And so they feel weird about, you know, eating meat that had been sacrificed to these idols, this idolatrous stuff that they came out of, because they're just not very strong in their faith yet. And, of course, for a believer who didn't come out of that lifestyle, we just say, hey, what's the big difference? It's just barbecue, right? I mean, it's okay. I don't care if it was sacrificed to an idol. Idols aren't even real. They're not real gods. It's just nice, yummy, burnt flesh, right? Let's, let's chow. Let's chow. So, yeah, that would be the way for, for them. He continues on in verse 10. For if someone sees you who have knowledge dining in an idol's temple, will not his conscience, if he is weak, be strengthened to eat things sacrificed to idols? So even though we could have that liberty to go and eat, right, that, that food as a, a believer solid in their faith, that one that's come out of that's going to look at you and go, oh, well, he's doing it. I, I guess it's okay. And they're going to defile their conscience doing something they know they really in their heart feel like they shouldn't do. So it, it can cause a weak brother to stumble in their faith. Now, what are we to do for this weaker brother or sister? Help them. It's pretty simple, right? It's not rocket science. Help them. Hold them. Support them. Help them to withstand and endure whatever weakness that they have going on in their life. You know that passage in James chapter 5, verse 14, where it says, Is any among you sick? Then he must call for the elders of the church, and they are to pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. The word used for sick is the same word that we have here in our passage translated as weak. So I would even say that a case could be made for a brother or sister weak in faith to call for the elders to pray over them. And then verse 15, and the prayer offered in faith will restore the one who is sick or restore the one who is weak. And the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, they will be forgiven in him. Of course, that's the duty of the elders, but it doesn't mean that 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 doesn't mean that that would be true for any of us. To pray with those who are weak. And, and what else can you do? What else can you do to help a brother or sister weak in their faith? Well, really many of the same helps that you would use for encouraging the faint-hearted that we just got done talking about. You need to come alongside this brother or sister. You need to build a relationship with them. You need to encourage them in the scriptures you need to give them an example to follow you need to help steer them away from any sin that might be going on in their life and as we said certainly pray for them pray for them fifthly long suffering our our next surefire sanctifier is long suffering we're still in verse 14 this is 14c when paul says be patient with everyone Again, part of the fruit of the Spirit. Ah, oh, this can be a difficult one for us, huh? Many of us, I, I know, you're right here, yours truly. So consider patience, and I'm going to give you three ways to consider 
patience and how you might extend patience. First of all, patience is long-suffering. Patience as long-suffering. Uh, one of my favorites, Jerry Bridges. Jerry Bridges says this. He describes patience as long-suffering in this way. Quote, this aspect of patience is the ability to suffer a long time under mistreatment or provocation of others without growing resentful or bitter. Now think about that, because I think most of us would be fine with this definition, right? If we stopped after the ability to suffer a long time under the mistreatment of others. Can we just end there? But no, it says uh, the next part, without growing resentful or bitter. Ouch. That hurts, doesn't it? Yeah, that hurts. I know. This can include mistreatment or provocation from a family member, even a spouse, a friend, a co-worker, boss, even someone from inside the church. And one of the best ways to actually cultivate a slowness to anger and to prevent yourself from being provoked is to Meditate frequently on the long-suffering and patience of who? Jesus. Jesus. And the tremendous patience of God, who, frankly, we provoke all the time. All the time. And yet he is patient, and he is patient, and he is patient, and he is patient, 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 right? Secondly, we can understand patience as endurance or perseverance, Whereas our patience towards those who mistreat us or provoke us is a little more about people. Patience as endurance and perseverance has to do more with circumstance. Endurance being the ability to stand up under adversity. And perseverance being the ability to progress in spite of it. It's the same Greek word there for both of those, for both endurance and perseverance. So think of patience as a godly response to adversity in your life. Joseph is a great example there of somebody who endured and persevered in his circumstances. And of course, Jesus himself enduring and persevering all the way to the cross. Thirdly, we have patience as forbearance or even tolerance. This is the category that you and I probably have had the most encounters with because it's about showing patience towards the faults and failures of others towards us usually right it's it's more about people behaving in ways that indirectly or directly affect us by irritating us disappointing us getting under our skin it's it's having sometimes a different belief system with somebody or even how believers might relate to unbelievers and this can be everything from the driver in front of you who drives 45 in a 55 zone and will not use a turnout or it can be the co-worker that just seems to just get under your skin or it's the telemarketer that calls when oh during dinner time of course and and it's the inconsiderate neighbor and it's it's living alongside those with different political and social views but most of the time it's about tolerating your family and the irritating habits that get magnified because of the closeness that we all share as a family i was thinking you know our, our biological families that could include the church family right In all of these different ways for us to practice patience, one of the best ways 
you can help sanctify a brother or sister in this area is to demonstrate patience yourself towards them. You think that might have a profound effect on them? Absolutely. Amen. Lastly, number six, good instead of evil. That's our last surefire sanctifier. Good instead of evil. This is verse 15. This is where I combined two. Um, Paul says, see that no one repays another with evil for evil, but always seek. Do you hear that? Always. Always. How often? Always seek after that which is what? Good for one another and for all people. Now, here's where I want to go with this. We often think of evil as being kind of the worst of the worst. But what if evil, if we simply looked at it as sin? Just just consider it as sin this morning. So then think of people who sin against you. In other words, do evil against you. And what's a common reaction for us when someone sins against us? We want to get back at them. We want to retaliate. We want to get even. I mean, they're going to you know, pull out that flaming arrow. And we're like, Whoa, okay, fine. They take the javelin. Oh, I got one bigger. You know, and they throw the grenade. Boom, I, I got a grenade too, right? And that's our, that's our tendency to, to do these things as, as sinners, even, even as sometimes sinners saved by grace. And think about this. Who is it we typically do this with? I mean, seriously, not with the overtly evil, right? No, we typically return evil for evil to people we know. People we know. Our spouses. Our kids. Our parents. Our family. Our friends. Co-workers. Schoolmates. And yes, even our brothers and sisters in Christ. Someone once said, The Bible tells us to love our neighbors and also to love our enemies. Probably because they're generally the same people. So what if instead, instead of getting even, instead of settling the score, shooting the flaming arrow, throwing the grenade when they sin against us, what if you and I actually purposed to do good to them? Do good. Friends, this mission, should you choose to accept it, may be one of the most difficult missions you ever embark on. Now, I I know sitting here this morning in church, you might be thinking, oh, pshaw, pastor, that's just, that's easy peasy. Come on, seriously, give me something difficult to uh, accomplish here this morning. Here's the deal. I challenge you to try it. Now, I dare you to try it. Okay, I double dog dare you to try it. Try it. Try it. When your spouse or your family member or or your friend or person in the church is behaving sinfully towards you in word or deed, I challenge you, I say this to myself as well, to respond to them by doing something good to them. And not with a wicked, evil heart behind it, right? With a truly good, righteous heart. This means, spouses, when you're angry and you are seeing red because of your partner's sin, I challenge you to walk over to them and give them a hug right there in the middle of that. 
or get them a little gift or or do something for them. Do a do a honeydew or or even send them a loving card or note. Kids, kids, I challenge you to respond to your sinning parents with kind words and even obedience in that moment. Friends, co-workers, brothers and sisters in the church, think of what good thing that you can tangibly do for the one who is sinning against you and then do it. Do it. Don't just think about it. I could do that. I'm too angry. Do it. And as you do it, consider what good and sanctifying effect that will have on them. Because it will. You will shock them to no end. You'll knock their socks off, as I like to say. Because it will have a good effect, again, if you do it with a sincere heart. Lastly, after seeking that which is good for one another, other believers, then here's the thing. You've got to do it for all people, because that's what the Scripture says. All people. Right? Not just those inside the church, those outside the church. And again, consider what will happen if you do good to those who do evil to you outside the church. You're going to shock them as well. I mean, do you think that that's going to ultimately open up a door for the gospel for you? It should. Most definitely. You bet it will. So friends, as we wrap up this morning, we got our six surefire sanctifiers. Right, that we want to be doing, we want to be putting into practice, especially in regard to how that affects others. Peaceful living, discipline for the undisciplined, soul salve, spiritual strength, long suffering, and good instead of evil. Let's pray. Father, this sometimes sounds easy to do, these things. It sounds easy to do while we're here sitting in church and we're loving you and praising you and loving each other. And then we walk out these doors, Father. And the world hits us and and sin hits us and temptation hits us and, and we succumb to these things. But Father, oh, that we could do something different, that we could be obedient to your word. And Lord, put these things into practice, especially in regard to our relationships with others, that we would actually help others be sanctified, be more like your son, and in the process, of course, be sanctified ourselves. I pray for any here that need to put Jesus Christ, Lord, as their Lord and Savior right now, that they would repent of their sins and put their faith in him and what he accomplished for them on the cross and what he accomplished in his resurrection. We pray all of this in your son Jesus' name. And everybody said, Amen. Scripture quotations taken from the New American Standard Bible. Copyright by the Lockman Foundation.